Welcome to QD Clinic. My name is Dr. Eric Dine from Atlantic Health in Summit, New Jersey. Today I'm going to present a case for QD Clinic uh, very quick as always, but I, I'm going to cover multiple visit dates uh, of a challenging patient case. Patient comes in to see me for a new rheumatology visit and tells me that she has long-standing rheumatoid arthritis that had been excellently treated by her, her prior rheumatologist. Her rheumatologist had a magical cocktail of prednisone 40 milligrams and morphine and that worked like a charm. She said, I'm here for a refill of those medications, please and thank you. Uh, I said, not so fast, let's learn a little bit about your RA and let's, let's figure out, let's get, of course, a, a better regimen than that. On exam, there was no clinical synovitis, but she was on a loaded prednisone. She had lots of chronic pain, hypersensitivity to the touch. Um, I told her that I, I'd love to figure out a strategy, understand her RA, do some lab work, understand that. Um, I, I would like to taper the prednisone so I can really get a sense of what's going on with her disease and if, if appropriate, start her on the appropriate DMARD RA therapy. I told her that I don't prescribe a Band-Aid of chronic pain medication, but I, I work very closely with a, an excellent pain management colleague. I'd love to have her see that physician uh, and work on this together uh, and, and get an RA plan for her. She yelled, she screamed, she stormed out of the office because she said, I didn't care about her RA because I wouldn't give her this appropriate medication that has worked for her in the past with opiates and, and prednisone. Um, I went a while without hearing for her, but a year and a half later, she shows up on my schedule again. So she requested a telemedicine visit. Turns out she had seen a variety of doctors of different specialties who for a number of, of red flags did not feel comfortable giving her any more pain medicines in terms of opiates. And, and she's been off of those medicines, but in severe chronic pain. She understood what I told her before that I would be there for her RA when she was ready. And she said she would like to come work on her RA, but she would not be seen in person. She didn't have the transportation. She, uh, I tried to work on a plan for that, but she was not interested. She also did not want any blood work. Um, she did listen to me, and um, she she came down on her prednisone from 40 to 30 before that visit. And sure enough, she had visible synovitis in her MCPs and, and PIPs and her wrists on, on uh, through the computer screen. You could tell that apparently. Um, she had heard about this medication from a lot, another doctor that um, that wrecks your eyes, and she didn't want to be on that either. So what would you do in this situation? A, say sorry. Without being seen, without blood work and, and follow-up, I can't do very much until you're ready for that. B, emphasize hydroxychloroquine and the safety of it, uh, despite some misconceptions you might have. C, try a trial of DMARDs and not continue it without any follow-up. Maybe she'll see the light with an initial response or D, something else. For me, um, I spoke with her about a variety of options. She, she opposed the hydroxychloroquine. She was dead set against that. She had heard bad things. Um, ultimately, she was okay with, with a trial of minocycline. Uh, and I talked to her about it not requiring blood work. And we talked about potential skin pigmentary changes, but she was okay with that um, potential. And, and I, I truthfully wasn't convinced it was going to do the trick for um an inflammatory arthritis breaking through 30 milligrams of prednisone, but it gave us a strategy to um, work on a relationship together. She was willing to work on coming down on the prednisone. She was willing to check in with me. Uh, and ultimately, she did feel like the minocycline was working for her somewhat, but not enough. And so um, she actually had a family member move into town and was able to come in for doctor's offices. 
Uh, and she was eventually amenable to coming on to a conventional DMR, and we're still working on figuring out a good plan for her. So the lessons from that from that I learned, number one, meet the patient where they are. You can't put your uh, ideal treatment plan on all patients, and, and they won't adhere if, if they don't have buy-in for it. Number two, if there's not agreement, go back and, and just focus on building trust and, and a relationship. And from that, things can develop and, and things can change over time. And when all else fails, if nothing else, minimize harms with medications and, and do a harm reduction technique. I talked about the prednisone and the side effects uh, or opiates or NSAIDs and find the safest regimen, if not the ideal regimen, uh, and work on, on getting that benefit of disease control with harm reduction. Thank you very much for QD Clinic today. Stay tuned to Room Now for all of our A month. Take care. Hi, I'm Dr. Catherine Dow, and this is QD Clinic. I'm going to present a case that's really important, and it's something of a case that you've probably seen in your clinic. So this is a 64-year-old female. She was a former smoker. She has diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and also seropositive rheumatoid arthritis. So she comes in for evaluation. She's been taking um, methotrexate, 20 milligrams a week, hydroxychloroquine, and prednisone, 5 milligrams a day. On her exam, she has three tender, three swollen joints. Well, what would be your next step in controlling her rheumatoid arthritis? And how would you mitigate her cardiovascular risk? So this is about cardiovascular risk in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. And so in order to understand the cardiovascular risk associated with rheumatoid arthritis, we have to understand the risk associated with the inflammatory disease, as well as the risk associated with the medications we use to treat the inflammatory disease. Now, we all know the traditional risk factors for rheumatoid arthritis. That's obesity, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, hypertension, and tobacco use. But rheumatoid arthritis itself is an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease. We know that RA is a pro-inflammatory state. It's associated with accelerated atherosclerosis, endothelial cell dysfunction, and microvascular disease. Not only that, the increase in cytokines associated in rheumatoid arthritis has been found to increase coronary calcifications. There's also been more research pointing to intravascular nets. So these are neutrophil extracellular um, traps that's been found in the vasculature of RA patients. And they're thinking that these nets may be contributing to the pro-inflammatory, pro-thrombotic and pro-coagulant environment. And just having citrullination itself can be associated with cardiovascular disease, even in patients who do not have rheumatoid arthritis. In addition, about 40% of RA deaths are due to cardiovascular disease. And when patients have active inflammatory disease, so even a one unit increase in their DAS28, that increases cardiovascular risk by 33%. And we know that patients who are in remission, they have a 50% chance less of having a cardiovascular event. So it makes sense to control the disease to reduce cardiovascular mortality. But what about our treatments? You know, we use a lot of NSAIDs, steroids, our synthetic DMARDs, as well as biologics. How do they impact cardiovascular disease? Now, there's been a massive number of cardiovascular outcome studies, particularly with NSAIDs, right? And this was partly because rofecoxib and valdecoxib was removed from the market a while ago. So they wanted to know, are NSAIDs safe? In a meta-analysis from 2011, 
they compared the different kinds of NSAIDs out there like ibuprofen, naproxen, diclofenac, as well as a few others. And the authors found that the highest risk for strokes, cardiovascular death, and death from any cardiac causes is actually related to diclofenac. But what about the other NSAIDs, particularly celecoxib? It's the only COX-2 inhibitor on the market. So in 2016, the precision study was um, conducted. Now, this is a randomized prospective trial, and it compared pretty good doses of NSAIDs to each other. So they took patients and gave them celecoxib, 100 to 200 milligrams BID, or naproxen, 375 milligrams to 500 milligrams BID, or ibuprofen, 600 to 800 milligrams TID. And they gave them to patients with arthritis and who have higher cardiovascular risks. They treated them for two years and followed them for three years. And what they found was that the rate of cardiovascular events were actually very similar among the three NSAIDs. Celecoxib did not increase the risk for cardiovascular events more than ibuprofen or naproxen. How about steroids? Now, we know that steroids are bad for a number of reasons. It can cause patients to gain weight, increase the risk for diabetes. Well, steroids also can increase cardiovascular disease. The sad news, a third of our rheumatoid arthritis patients are on long-term steroids. There's a VA retrospective cohort study that found that even just giving a patient 30 days of glucocorticoids, it's associated with a higher odds of MACE in the next six months. And that's independent of any other cardiovascular risk factor. There was also another study that found that prednisone doses of more than seven and a half milligrams a day is associated with the risk of an acute MI by about 25%. So what about our DMARDs then? So NSAIDs, you can use them, steroids, bad, but what about our DMARDs? With regards to the conventional synthetic DMARDs, pretty much all of them, like methotrexate, hydroxychloroquine, sulfasalazine, loflutamide have been shown to reduce the risk for MIs, strokes, as well as congestive heart failure. Hydroxychloroquine had an added benefit. It's been shown to improve lipid profiles and decrease incident diabetes. More recently, there's been a prospective randomized controlled trial looking at triple DMARD therapy and comparing it to TNF inhibitors. And what the study did was that they measured arterial inflammation in the carotids by PET-CT. And they found that triple DMARD therapy performed about the same as a TNF inhibitor. Those patients who received triple DMARD therapy have the same kind of arterial inflammation reduction as those who are on TNF inhibitors. We know that TNF inhibitors are great. They've been shown to reduce cardiovascular disease. So, but is one biologic better than another? What about another mechanism of action? In a meta-analysis, they compared all these biologics and they found that pretty much all of them reduce cardiovascular risk. Now, I really think it's because the disease is better controlled. So that's the reason why the risk for MIs, strokes, heart failure have been reduced. Now, it's interesting to note in one of the studies that tocilizumab may outperform TNF inhibitors. What about the JAK inhibitors? Now, the FDA had issued warnings about JAK inhibitors increasing risk for strokes, thrombosis, and MIs. Well, this was based on the oral surveillance study. Um, in one of the Tuesday night rheumatology, Dr. Janet Pope discussed the oral surveillance study. And essentially, this is a prospective randomized controlled trial. It's open label. 
And what they did was they compared tofacitinib to a TNF inhibitor. The study population was enriched for high-risk patients. So these are patients who are diabetics, they're smokers, they might've had previous heart attacks. And the way the study authors defined non-inferiority of tofacitinib is if the hazard ratio's upper limit of the confidence interval is less than 1.8. So they enrolled over 4,300 patients. They followed them for four years. And unfortunately, tofacitinib did not meet its endpoint of having the upper limit of confidence interval less than 1.8 in the combined five milligram and 10 milligram dose. While the confidence interval crossed one, the upper limit of the confidence interval was 1.94. So that's higher than 1.8. But when you took out, just looking at the five milligrams BID dosing, the confidence interval, the upper limit of the confidence interval was only 1.74. Needless to say, the FDA noted that healthcare professionals should consider the risk and benefits for an individual patient prior to initiating and continuing therapy with these drugs, especially in those who have cardiovascular risk factors. So essentially, the questions have been raised. Is it that JAK inhibitors do not protect patients from cardiovascular disease as much as TNF inhibitors? Or do JAK inhibitors itself carry the added risk of cardiovascular disease? And perhaps do DMARD therapy, other background DMARDs matter when you prescribe a JAK inhibitor, like perhaps a JAK inhibitor in triple therapy with hydroxychloroquine and methotrexate might have the same protection. We don't know. And would you necessarily forego JAK inhibitors in patients with cardiovascular risk? So in my opinion, controlling disease activity, reducing steroid use, and controlling comorbidities are probably the most important factors in reducing cardiovascular risk. Choice of therapy depends on what will control the disease, the patient's preference, and insurance coverage. So back to the patient that I presented. What we did was we added sulfasalazine to her regimen. We were able to taper off her steroids, and she's been in remission. Thank you for watching. This is Dr. Katherine Dow. Follow me on Twitter at KDow2011. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Mike Putman from the Medical College of Wisconsin. And today I'm excited to tell you about a 43-year-old patient with a recent diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis. Now, my patient had initially been diagnosed five months prior with an inflammatory polyarthritis. She tested negative for rheumatoid factor in a CCP, uh, but her sedimentation rate and CRP had both been elevated. And she initiated therapy with hydroxychloroquine and methotrexate with an outside rheumatologist. And, you know, when she came to me, when I first met her, she said that she'd overall responded somewhat poorly to therapy. Now, over the past few weeks, she had experienced a red eye that was initially diagnosed by an urgent care doctor as conjunctivitis. She did not uh, respond very well to eye drops and instead experienced progressive pain, as well as some new photophobia, trouble going outside in the light, and some persistent tearing. Now, after she came to an optometrist, she was sent to the emergency room because they thought she could have scleritis, which they said might be due to rheumatoid arthritis, which, you know, we all think that's pretty plausible, right? Now, when we saw her, we actually took a look at her eye and it was not episcleritis as one of the urgent cares had originally considered, uh, but was actually quite concerning. So she had an enlarged and injected red vessels all around her eye that was consistent with scleritis to me. But then she also had this thinning and blue discoloration around the, um, the iris that even I as a non-ophthalmologist could appreciate was uh, abnormal and certainly concerning. So we uh, consulted a proper eye doctor who promptly diagnosed her with bilateral scleritis 
keratitis, limbal thinning, and peripheral ulcerative keratitis, or PUK. Now, this leads to my first take-home point from today, which is to take eye disease and rheumatoid arthritis very seriously. PUK is one of the more feared complications of rheumatoid arthritis eye disease, and when left untreated, can actually result in perforation and ultimately in blindness. Now, this requires an urgent therapy, and we started IV prednisolone. You know, interestingly, steroid drops are somewhat controversial given the potential for further thinning, and I tend to defer that to the eye doctors. Now, you'd think that this is a nice, tidy conclusion to our case, but when our patient was admitted to the hospital, she was also noted to have acute kidney injury with a creatinine of 2.3. Now, after fluid resuscitation, this did not improve as we had hoped that it would. And my second take-home point for today is to avoid anchoring on a diagnosis of seronegative rheumatoid arthritis. I mean, look, we all know seronegative rheumatoid arthritis is very much a real thing. About a third of patients will be with RA will be seronegative, as our patient was. Her initial diagnosis was honestly reasonable. But it certainly did not explain the kidney injury, um, and her, you know, her lackluster response to methotrexate gave me pause. So, what else causes PUK? Whenever you have sort of a "what else could this be?" question, I like to tell my my trainees to just sink their teeth into something. You know, what about this case is odd? And PUK certainly stood out. So. Rheumatoid arthritis is the most common cause of PUK, but granulomatosis with polyangiitis and systemic lupus erythematosus both account for reasonably large fractions of cases. But a third of cases of PUK can be not associated with systemic illness. For anyone who loves uh, medical eponyms, this is called Morin's ulcer. But I don't like eponyms. And when a patient already has inflammatory polyarthritis, I certainly do not think that this is going to be an isolated case. So given some suspicions for alternative diagnosis, we sent ANCA testing and consulted nephrology. The ANCA is returned with a high titer of a PR3 antibody, and nephrology was sufficiently concerned about her active urinary sediment that they performed a kidney biopsy. This ultimately found pausiimmune glomerulonephritis. This takes me to my third take-home point, which is that ANCA-associated vasculitis presents with inflammatory arthritis in nearly half of cases. That certainly does not mean that all patients with inflammatory arthritis need to undergo ANCA testing. You would get a lot of false positives if you did that, and it would, would not be pleasant. But um, I do perform a review of systems for ANCA-associated vasculitis in all patients with inflammatory arthritis. And then patients who have suggestive features, such as unexplained renal disease, aggressive sinonasal disease, purpuric rashes, or or wrist and foot drop should receive ANCA testing in addition to whatever your workup is for the inflammatory arthritis by itself. So take home points, you know, take eye disease and rheumatoid arthritis seriously. It can be very dangerous. In this case, one of the take home points was that you should avoid anchoring on a diagnosis of seronegative rheumatoid arthritis because sometimes you will actually find another disease. And my last one is that ANCA-associated vasculitis presents with inflammatory arthritis more often than people think. So always keep that in mind. Thanks so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed this case. Welcome to RAQD Clinic. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. RAQD Clinic is brought to you by Hard Decisions in RA, our campaign on RA. Today's case, enough with the steroids. A 57-year-old female uh, was started on therapy for rheumatoid arthritis about 14 weeks ago. Um, the patient's currently taking... PRN, meloxicam, daily leflunamide, and weekly abatacept. She had been doing well. Um, her last CDI score was four, but she calls in and she complains that she's not doing well. She's got a flare-up in her knuckles and uh, is concerned and wants to know what to do about that. 
She is a seropositive RA patient. She has a history of depression um, and osteopenia. The question is how you're going to treat what either looks like a worsening of disease or a flare of disease. Um, is she on the right regimen of meloxicam, PRN, uh, leflunamide, and abatacept? So your choices are, first, immobilization, rest, and ice. Second, um, give her another analgesic, tell her to take the analgesic daily. Third, prednisone, let's go with 10 milligrams, 10 days. Um, or maybe you like a Medrol dose pack um, where she gets six days of, of um, um, Medrol dropping from 24 to 4 milligrams over a six-day period. Or would you use another kind of steroid, either intramuscular or intraarticular? And the question is, uh, is this a steroid thing? Should she have been on steroids from the start? And I want you to know a few things about steroids and the guidelines. First, um, this month on our campaign that we have a therapeutic update video series um, and there's a great video on there contrasting the views of the ACR and ULAR and Australia on steroids. Robert Landaway taking the ULAR view, uh, Brian England taking the ACR view on steroid use in treating RA and Peter Nash taking the Aussie view. Look at that video. I think you'll find it very informative. We don't all think about this the same way. Secondly, both the ACR 2021 guidelines and ULAR 2022 guidelines to treat RA say nothing about steroids uh, in treating flares. They basically say, you know, you manage flares when you start withdrawing therapy and that's where glucocorticoids could come into play. But there is no flare management protocol in either of those guidelines. And as I said, these other videos that are all going to take the a critical view of either the permissive or draconian stance on steroids. And the question is, how does it affect me? What's my view? Well, um, I would say that when I'm treating a brand new early RA, uh, I do not start everyone on steroids. In fact, I probably start maybe one in three, maybe one in four people. And that's based on either they're being red hot or secondly, they need to work and function really quickly. And they can't wait the four to six weeks for the jack inhibitor or the six to eight weeks for the TNF and uh, meth or not the TNF, the methotrexate to work. So there I'll use steroids along with starting some other conventional or uh, other DMARD to manage them. Um, when I do start a DMARD, I basically started as uh, a get-rich-quick scheme. Let's get control of this disease right now. I scare everybody. I tell them, I'm going to give you a drug. It's wonderful. You're going to feel fabulous. However, it's chronically dangerous. Take this drug every day for more than six months. You're going to get fat, hypertensive, diabetic, blind, weak bones, fractures, thin skin, easy bruising, hair thin, you know, muscle weakness, stomach ulcers. I mean, I go on and on and on. I want to motivate the patient not to take steroids. And that usually works. But more importantly, if I do give them steroids, I give them an expiration date, meaning you're only going to be on this for 10 days if it's a flare. Maybe it's 8 to 12 weeks if it's the initiation of DMAR therapy in a new patient. 
you know, the idea is you only give enough steroids that when it's done, it's done. And that's the way it's going to be. Without that, we get into all these steroid problems that we're all familiar with. And, I, yeah, so I'm still kind of on the ACR side and le- the ULAR view being a little more permissive. The last question is, would you let your patient um, have a prescription for steroids that they can take PRN? And I will in some people, people who've gotten control of their disease without steroids, people who I scared about taking steroids so that they don't want to take steroids. If I've never done that, I'm not going to use PRN steroids. I do have patients where I tell them, listen, when you're traveling, take a you know five or ten of prednisone the day you travel, a day after you travel, depending on your activity while you're traveling, and then stop it when you get back home. That works remarkably well. Um, it's stressful to get on airplanes and travel to a foreign country and lug around, and lug around the luggage and all that. Um, but again, I'm very selective about who I'll give that prescription to. I think you should be as well. Tune in for more of these RAQD clinics. These are brought to you by our sponsor this month, Bristol Myers Squibb.